The reading this evening is from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, pardon, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow 
nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take, pardon, will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I don't know that we've ever sung that hymn um, as a church. It's possible that, that we did, but it's been a while for sure since we've sung it together. Uh, I grew up uh, in a church singing it very often, so it's still very familiar to me. But thinking through the words this week, looking at it closely, it is an encouragement as the hymn writer walks through many different seasons of life that we often find ourselves in. And the solution again and again is take it to the Lord in prayer. Go to him, seek the Lord, which is much easier said than done. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was correct, and I think we could all agree That he was correct when he said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. It's not hard to to think about the need for prayer. It's not hard to acknowledge that we should pray. But really going to the Lord and praising him and laying requests and petitions at his feet, particularly in times of need, proves to be difficult. Now, prayer is not difficult because God has exerted his almighty power to make it nearly impossible to accomplish it. God is not working against us in prayer. It is difficult because we are so reluctant to humility and dependence. Prayer is not designed to make life more burdensome. In fact, it's just the opposite. Just a few chapters forward in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation from Jesus to us as his people is not to be yoked to him so that he can then drive us into the ground, pulling and jerking us in all the directions of life that we don't want to go. 
The invitation is to be yoked with Jesus so that he can shoulder the massive burdens that we are carrying, thus lightening our load, thereby unburdening us. In the context of the Lord's Prayer that we are looking at specifically together this evening, Jesus continues teaching, as you notice there with us reading the entirety of the chapter, encouraging us against worry, against anxiety, against fear. And the reason that we shouldn't worry, the reason that we shouldn't be anxious, the reason that we shouldn't be fearful is because God is our Father. And being our Father, He knows all these things, all those things that we need. He's aware of them. In fact, He has made us to need those things in order that he might supply them for us. Therefore, verse 33 of Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and God's righteousness, and all these things, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, all these things will be added unto you. Come to me, Jesus says, Seek first God's kingdom, Jesus says. These are gracious commands from a mercifully kind Father. Gracious commands. We don't often use those terms together. But when Christ says, come to me, it is a command that is full of grace and mercy and love. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God, it is a command that is oozing with mercy and grace. Listen to the promise included with these commands. You will find rest for your soul. All these things will be given to you. Prayer is primarily for communion and fellowship with God. So because prayer is primarily for fellowship with God and communion with him, therefore following the example of the man who is most intimately acquainted with God should be of paramount importance with us, which is what brings us to the Lord's Prayer. If we want to commune with God, if we want fellowship with God who is our Father, seeking to learn from the pattern prayer that Christ offers here in the Sermon on the Mount is crucial for us. The disciples of Jesus noticed the communion that he had with his Father, which is why they asked in Luke's Gospel, Luke 11, teach us to pray. Teach us that kind of communion. Teach us to fellowship with our Father in the way that you do. The opening line of the prayer, our Father who is in heaven, fulfills that desire, that curiosity to know how we should pray. Leading up to that, the first eight verses, Jesus has made clear how we should avoid praying, how not to pray. How should we not pray? We should not pray like hypocrites. We should not pray like pagans. And we should not pray like orphans. How should we pray? Pray then in this way, our Father. So if we're not to pray like hypocrites and we're not to pray like pagans and we're not to pray like orphans, how should we pray? Like children, our 
Father. He has made us His children. This should be extremely freeing for us, a major relief. Let's look more specifically at verses 9 through 13 together. The opening phrase, Our Father who is in heaven, followed by six requests in machine gun style. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the closing doxology, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, if we split up the prayer into two distinct parts, it splits up rather cleanly. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything about God paralleling the first table in the Ten Commandments, his name, his kingdom, his will, our duty to him. And then the second three requests, your kingdom come, your will be done. Pardon, give us this day our daily bread, forgive our debts, and lead us not in temptation, is our duty to man, our provision, our daily provision, our pardon from sin, our protection from evil. Thomas Watson, writing on the Lord's Prayer, noted two specific benefits of using this prayer as a pattern prayer in our praying. The first benefit, he notes, is it prevents us from making errors in our prayers. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. How can we ask in a right way? By following the pattern of Jesus. He says, pray then in this way. Secondly, Watson notes, requested mercies will be obtained because of praying according to God's will. Again, 1 John 5, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, anything, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So basically, Watson notes these two benefits to using the Lord's Prayer as as a model, as a guide, as a pattern. It guards us against error, and it guarantees answers. Those are pretty good boundaries for our praying, pretty good motivations. We're guarded against error because we're praying the way that Christ tells us to, and we're guaranteed answers because we're praying according to his will. So why would we not take more advantage of this pattern for praying? Now, we we just read, just prior to the Lord's Prayer here recorded for us, that there's a danger with repetition. Now, with us using this as a pattern, I'm not suggesting that you simply get up day after day and your praying only consists of going through the Lord's Prayer. We were on the way here today, and one of the kids asked where, what the reading was going to be from, if it was going to be from Daniel. Next week is Daniel, okay? So I said, no, Matthew 6, 
specifically 9 through 13. That's where I'll be if you just want to look at that. He was one to look at it um, on the way. And so then I tried to quote it. And I'm quoting it in the King James and the New King James and the ESV and the New American Standard. And it's all over the place. Because at some point I've used all those Bible translations in a significant way. And so it was all blended together in my mind. And I'll probably blend it together <laughs> through the rest of the sermon, especially now drawing, that I've drawn attention to it. But using it as a pattern and a model is not merely for the sake of repetition. Now, and repetition doesn't necessarily have to be bad. What Jesus makes clear is that vain, meaningless repetition is pagan-like. But this pattern that Jesus offers has transferable principles for communion with God. And we want to apply them and seek to use them in that way. And there's really no bad time to implement this. The beginning of a new year is a good opportunity to implement it. For some reason, we are people that like to start things new. Someone was at the house this week, I'm forgetting who it was, and they mentioned their mom or grandmother had a magnet or something on the refrigerator. It reminded me that my grandmother had a magnet on her refrigerator growing up for as long as I can remember that said, I'll start my diet on Monday. <laughs> and that's the way we live. Like, it's, it's not Monday, but it is a new year, and lots of us probably have great plans, and some of us probably have kept our New Year's resolutions for all 18 hours almost of this new year. New Year's resolutions are not necessarily bad. Um, this prayer, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, is often unfortunately written off as having minimal benefit because of the fact that Jesus is clearly teaching it very early in his ministry. So there are people that will argue it's elementary. It's, it's useless because it's just meant for the very young in their faith, which is unfortunate. Gospel writers saw the need to include it as they were inscribing the scriptures years later without any hint at all of it being superseded. The only difference we might note with regard to prayer throughout the entirety of the New Testament is that the disciples were later taught by Christ himself to offer their requests or petitions in his name. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, Jesus said, I will do it. Now, the prayer is simple. If you grew up in church, you probably learned it at a young age. It's so simple that young children can know it and recite it. But the prayer is also profound. The, the seed of gospel-rich truth for life is contained within it. There's probably not a better combination of simple yet rich. Let's hone in for a bit on this opening phrase. Our Father who is in heaven... Jesus says this is how we ought to pray. We offer prayers to God, to God alone. He is a jealous God. We do not offer prayers to angels or saints or men or women. 
Pray then in this way, our Father. He is a jealous God. He's our Father. And he is in heaven. Christ commands us to call God our Father. In order to awaken us, as it were, at the very beginning of our praying for what should be basic to our prayer, and that is a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ, God has become our Father. And he treats us like his children. Just as parents do not refuse the things of life to their children, even less will God, our Father, refuse to give us what we ask for in faith, in keeping with his will. Through Christ, God has become our Father. Jesus says, when you pray, pray then in this way, our Father. But is God the Father of everyone? God is not the Father of all people. He is the Father of all who have come to him through Christ. He is the Father of only those who have come to him through Christ. Now, this can be an issue, a sticking point, for those who may assume that somehow we are all God's children. But that notion could not be further from the biblical reality. We are all his creatures, but is there really any solace in that? He created the devil, the demons. There's nothing that he didn't create. There's no solace in simply being a creature of God. Fatherhood, as Jesus is talking about it here, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, this fatherhood is not in regards to creation but to redemption. With regard to salvation, this fatherhood is exclusive and restricted, which I know may feel anti-human or un-American, but it's biblical. Only those who look to Jesus as mediator and sin-bearer and go to God through him have any right to call God Father. So when Jesus tells us to pray, Our Father, It's not for the sake of protocol, but for the sake of truth. Why call him your father? Because he is our father. He has become the father of those who have come to him through Christ. It's not an etiquette issue that Jesus is teaching us. It is an obedience issue. Pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven... Jesus doesn't stop with Father, but continues clarifying that this God, who is our Father, is in heaven. And he includes these words because in heaven, the reality of where God is teaches us not to think of God's heavenly, majestic splendor as something tangible and earthly. But it teaches us to expect Everything that we need for body, soul, life can be supplied by this one who is in heaven, who is almighty in his strength. Now, in one sense, these are contrasting ideas. Our Father, who is in heaven. 
though they are contrasting, they are not in conflict with one another. Who do we pray to? We pray to God our Father. Where is he? He is in heaven. He is a kind and most gracious Father. But in order to prevent a pattern of irreverence, Jesus makes mention of the dwelling place of this kind and gracious Heavenly Father. He dwells in a high and holy place that is marked by majesty and power and dominion and authority. He is unceasingly worshipped by myriads of angels. Our Father in heaven, in heaven instills a sense of majesty and it, it guards us prevents us from a chumminess by clearly referring to the transcendence that belongs exclusively to him. The contrast, our Father who is in heaven, a warm, tender confidence with him as a Father, and a deep reverence because he is God. It's intimacy with him as a Father, but intimacy with dignity because he's God. It's childlike trust, yet distinct awe. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The initial request. Words like initial and first are difficult when I look at the clock. (laughs) Because I have a long way to go. Hallowed be your name. The first of six requests. What is Jesus teaching us in this request? What does hallowing God's name mean? What is Jesus teaching us to actually ask for? Is it asking for something? Or is it merely stating a fact? It's not merely stating a fact. It's not your name is holy. That's a true statement. But that's not the pattern of praying that Jesus is teaching here. It it is, may your name be seen as holy. That's the prayer that Jesus is teaching us. It's not an assertion that Jesus is making, but a plea that he is offering. The request, this initial request, is essentially that God will allow us to rightly know him in order that it might result in sanctifying, glorifying, and praising him in all our works. Causing his almighty power, his remarkable wisdom, his unmatched goodness, his everlasting righteousness, his mercy, his truth to shine forth from our lives. That's the prayer. So that we might direct our lives, every aspect of our lives, thought, deed, intent, and word, in order to prevent his name from being blasphemed. Hallowed be your name. The very first thing that Jesus teaches us to pray for is that God's name might be consecrated and set apart. Now, it's not just the first request in a list of other requests. It is the chief request. It is the biggest request and the most basic request of the entire prayer. We might say it is the thesis of Jesus' prayer. The point of prayer in general is the glory of God, and the point of this prayer in particular is the glory of God, the hallowing of his name. 
This first request gives us a sense of direction in our praying. Establishes a grounding, if you will. We get our bearings and it provides the direction. Hallowed be your name. God, we want your name to be renowned in our lives and throughout the entire earth. Because our self-centeredness as humans knows no limits, our praying, if we were left to ourselves, would begin with us and end with us. And so it's so helpful to see this pattern from Jesus here. Begin here, hallowed be your name. And it ends there as well. You can run to the doxology. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Those are the bookends of this pattern prayer from Jesus. This divine ordering in this model prayer provides for us a reorientation, a realigning of our requests with God's priorities. All other requests must be shaped and fashioned by this initial concern. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Our provision of bread, our pardon from sin, our protection from evil. Because of our shallow hearts and dull minds and cool affections and weak discipline, we need this kind of plea from the outset. I need this kind of pattern to run to again and again and to see the principles that are lined out in this prayer from Jesus. I mentioned Luke 11 before when Jesus was asked how to pray, he began with, hallowed be your name. Literally, may God's name be revered in the entirety of my life. That's how Jesus taught us to begin. And there are practical outworkings of that. Because there is no greater way that we can hallow God's great name than in obedience to him. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every aspect, from the moment our eyes open on our pillow in the morning until we lay our head down again at night, everything in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why is it important? Because a poor performance in the workplace gives cause for God's name to be blasphemed. Because when our family affairs are out of order, it gives way for God's name to be mocked. Students, when you give minimal effort in the classroom, it results in God's name being profaned. When we post online statuses that contradict our life and our choices, it gives a wide open door for God's name to be trampled. Professing Christ with our mouths but constantly making selfish decisions evidences a mere profession as we stain his impeccable name. If the request for God's name to be hallowed is the foundational and overarching request of our praying, then we must honestly assess what measures we are taking to secure that his name is being hallowed in our lives. It's more than just saying, hallowed be your name, but it's making efforts. Request number two, your kingdom come. What are we praying for when we say your kingdom come? We are asking for the things that God has promised in his word, for the good of his church, 
to come to fruition. That the rule of Christ and the reign of Christ would take place in every heart and in every life. That the expanse of the glory of Christ would spread around the globe. That the final return of Christ would happen as he comes to claim his bride. Your kingdom come. The kingdom of grace in which we live will one day become the kingdom of glory. And that's our desire. That's our prayer. Request number three. That point was short. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's will? Here's a connection of the hallowing of God's name and his kingship coming. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His name is hallowed in heaven. He is king in heaven. His will is accomplished in heaven. And here's the prayer that the righteousness of God would rain down among his people so that his perfect will would happen in our lives, in our midst, here on earth, as it is guaranteed to happen in heaven. This third request is the logical consequence of the first two. When God's name is hallowed, his kingship will come and his will will be done. Now, when we talk about God's will, he has one will with two aspects. There is a concealed aspect of his will, his sovereign decree. It is concealed from us, not from him. And he has a revealed aspect, his displayed desire that is revealed through his works and through his word. The Bible is our revelation of the will of God. It is not disconnected from the concealed aspect of the will of God. You can think of it like a mountain range. One side is clearly visible. The other is hidden from our view. God sees them both perfectly, completely, simultaneously. They are not in opposition. The Lord's Prayer as Jesus teaches us to pray here, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is referring to God's revealed will, what we see revealed clearly in his word and in his works. God's sovereignly decreed will, that aspect of his will, is carried out perfectly, unquestionably, always, without fail. He even uses twisted situations and sinful circumstances and redeems through them. His will is good according to the kind intention of his will. In love, he adopts us, Ephesians 1.5. His will for each of his children is sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, Jesus said, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is God's guaranteed will. This is the concealed will, his sovereignly decreed will. It will happen. Our response to this glimpse that he allows us to have a little glimpse into his divine plan ought to serve as motivation for us to carry out his revealed will. 
his plan for us that he has detailed in the scriptures. If God's will in the Lord's Prayer is the concealed or secret will of God, then your will be done on earth as it is in heaven becomes a statement rather than a request. And just like hallowed be your name is not a statement but a request, it's a request here as well. We are not praying for God's plans to come to pass. That always happens. Can you imagine Jesus suggesting somehow that God's perfect will is not being accomplished? His perfect will is being accomplished. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is what is being accomplished in heaven. And based on the prayer of Jesus, God's will is not always accomplished on earth. His revealed will, his desire for us. We do not always do what God commands us and intends for us to do. But Jesus is saying, pray that we will. Your will be done, God, in our lives, through us as your people, on earth, just like it is in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. A necessary pattern for our lives. A helpful pattern, because we are, so often, too consumed with our name rather than his, setting up our own little kingdom rather than pleading for his to come, and seeking to accomplish our own desired will rather than accomplishing his revealed will for us. Your will be done. In the end, there are two kinds of people. Everyone in this room will fall into one of these categories. Those who have said to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. May God be gracious and merciful that we would be a people who say to God, your will be done. Rather than him saying to us, your will be done. We prove ourselves children of the heavenly father, members of his kingdom, subjects of Christ as king by obedience to his will, to his commands. Now, if this is the pattern for our lives, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how will we carry out this pattern and these desires? Well, the prayer continues. We will accomplish the hallowing of God's name, the begging of his kingdom to come, and the accomplishing of his will through material provisions from our Father, forgiving pardon from his Son, and spiritual protection from the Holy Spirit, which is detailed in verses 11, 12, and 13. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil." Give us our daily bread. How will we accomplish hallowing God's name, his kingdom coming, and doing his will through material provisions? Now, does it not seem like, at least in some measure, if if we're honest, does it not seem that after these bold petitions and requests regarding God's honor and his kingdom and his will, 
that the spiritual needs that we have would be next on the agenda? Following the expressed concern for his name and his kingdom and his will, does the request for daily bread not sound temporal and worldly and maybe even trite? However, Christ teaches us here to acknowledge our entire dependence on God to supply our daily necessities. All humanity is totally dependent on God to, dis- to supply their needs. What Jesus is teaching us here is to acknowledge it. To simply acknowledge that we need him to supply us with our material provisions in order to do what he's called us to do. Our approach at this point in the prayer should be after asking God to set his name apart and to expand his kingdom and to accomplish his desired will in our lives, we must then ask, where are we going to get the energy to work towards the goal of these glorious ends? How's it going to happen? To fail to mention, for us to fail to mention our personal needs for fear of bothering God with pettiness is as great an error as allowing these types of items to dominate our prayers. Don't you find that it, we, we are extremists by nature. We find ourselves in, in one category or the other, right? We, we're, it's like a grocery list of all the things we need, or we, we don't want to be trite and petty, so it's only honoring God and begging for his kingdom and not dealing with the smaller temporal, material things of life. Here Jesus is teaching that it's both and. We are physical creatures living in a material world with a temporal existence who are also eternal and spiritual. And somehow that's not in conflict. Except in our minds. It's quite the conflict to try to wrap our minds around it. We must not give in to the notion that prayers regarding physical needs are somehow low-grade prayers. God is our Father. Remember how the prayer starts. Our Father. He loves with a Father's love. And he is concerned for the complete well-being of his children. We see his concern regarding food in the miraculous feeding of 4,000 at one time and 5,000 at another. Now, I mentioned our tendency of extremism. It comes into play with issues like this regarding our physical bodies. When it comes to taking care of our physical bodies, we are prone to err either by deifying them or despising them or disregarding them. All are dangerous cliffs for us to fall off of. The only right response happens as a result of recognizing that God is our maker and therefore we must honor him with our physical bodies. One of the ways that we do that is give us this day our daily bread. This day. Now, our culture functions in such a way that we don't understand the concept really, for the most part, of looking for daily provision from God, not in the same kind of way that existed in the first century, which was basically today's pay for today's food. We don't function that way much anymore, particularly here in the West. But we can see what Jesus is encouraging here. We can see the principle that he's driving home. And it's illustrated well by thinking about 
a son coming to a father requesting money and the father promising that all the needs that he will ever have will be amply supplied. Promising that, but not signing it all over as a lump sum or a load of cash. The father loves his son. He desires fellowship and communion and companionship with his son. He expects the son to come each time that there's a need and to make the request known, believing that what was promised from the father was still true, that every need will be amply supplied. God loves us as his children, and he's promised to provide all that we will ever need, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. There is no lack in him, but he doesn't just give it to us all at once. He too, like an earthly father, desires fellowship and communion with his children. He gives as we come to him, as we acknowledge our need, as we ask for need. He gives what we need. Give us this day our daily bread. Unfortunately, we should also mention that this prayer for God to provide for daily material needs does not in any way, not in any way whatsoever, negate the obligation that we have to work and provide for ourselves, for our families, and also to serve those in need. There is a synergistic relationship between divine providence on the one hand and our laboring responsibilities on the other. Jesus is not telling us to pray for daily bread so that we can sleep late and avoid long days and cut corners at the job. If anyone does not provide for his own household, 1 Timothy 5.8, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We are utterly dependent on God who uses the normal human means of production and distribution to fulfill his purposes. In the same way that food, daily bread, is indispensable for life and health in our physical bodies, forgiveness is indispensable for the life and health of our souls. Point number five. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I'm alive and need to be kept alive, so I need bread. I'm guilty of sin and need to be cleansed from it, so I need forgiveness. And I live in a world of evil. Point number six, I'll mention it now, we'll get to it a little bit later. I need to be guarded from certain things in the future. Forgive us our debts. Forgiving pardon from the Son of God. Now, All the other previous petitions have implied an agreement to our responsibility, a commitment to his glory, a serving in his kingdom, a doing of his will. But this one is Jesus includes in his statement. He doesn't just say, and forgive us our debts, but it's included, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, there are people that deny the need for praying according to this fifth request. The argument may go something like this. We're justified by faith. There's no need to ask for forgiveness. Or we are forgiven and already holy, no longer committing sin, so there's no need to pray this point. Or we are not bound to the law, therefore this does not apply to us. It does apply. While we're outside of Christ, God is our judge. 
Once the verdict justified has been declared, he doesn't remain our judge, but adopts us, becoming our father. The Lord's Prayer is a family prayer. It's for children who long to be in close communion and right relationship with our Father. So we want to be forgiven, removing everything that would hinder that close communion with a loving Father who loves us and gave his Son for us. And we should also note and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We're not forgiven by God because of forgiving others. We, we forgive others because of the forgiveness that God has extended to us. God only forgives the repentant. And a chief evidence of true repentance is a forgiving spirit. If you pray this fifth request with integrity, in its entirety... You are either saying that you will forgive anyone of anything or that you are not a beneficiary of God's forgiveness. Can you imagine praying something like this? Oh God, please forgive me proportionately to the way in which I forgive people who have sinned against me. Because if you pray the fifth request, you are praying that. There's more on forgiveness just after the prayer in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And finally, these last three were material provisions for giving pardon and now spiritual protection. Do not lead us into temptation. Our proneness to stray is strong. We need deliverance from the evil that is in the world. We need deliverance from the evil within our own hearts. We need deliverance from the evil one who prowls around seeking someone to desire, to devour. Do not allow us to be led into temptation that overwhelms us is the literal prayer that Jesus is teaching us to pray. Does God lead us into temptation? No. Never. He does, however, have the ability to guide us away from or around and even through temptation. And that's exactly what's intended in this final petition. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Not take us out of the world but keep us from evil. That's the way Jesus prayed for us in his high priestly prayer. So do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We are completely dependent on God for our physical sustenance. We are completely dependent on God for our spiritual victory. We are completely dependent on God for our moral triumph. Jesus says, in the midst of the world, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. He is our Father. Is it true for you? Is he your father? Is there that habitual response 
of going to him as your father, praising him for who he is, acknowledging your need for him, asking him to continue being your great provider. May God help us to recognize that he has made us his children, that he's promised to give us all that we need for life and godliness. And he's invited us to come to yoke ourselves with his glorious son in order that our load might be light, in order that we might find rest. But it's important for us to remember, both in light of the text and as we prepare to come to the table, that the prayer is not for everyone. The prayer is for children of God. In the same way that the table, the the bread and the cup, the elements representing the body of the Lord Jesus Christ being broken for us and the cup representing his blood, the blood of the new covenant that was shed for the remission of our sins, it's only for believers for those who have repented of their sin and are repenting of their sin and who have trusted and are trusting in the work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. If, if that's you, if you're in Christ, if he is your father, then you are invited to come and to take of the bread and of the cup to recognize the union that we have with Christ and the communion that we have with one another. And to revel in that. To remember that the Christ who taught us to pray like this lived and died in order that we might not die the second death. In order that we might live forever. So we remember his life and his death. And we look forward to his return. Longing for him to come. When his kingdom here on earth will be set up and established forever and ever. We are proclaiming his death And we are looking for the promise of his coming. If God is not your father, he is your creator, and he can become your father. Christ died to save sinners, and I promise that you qualify for salvation. I am a sinner, and you're a sinner. Everyone save Christ who's ever walked on this earth is a sinner and qualifies for salvation. It's my plea that you'll come to Christ, that you'll turn from your sin, and that you'll find all your satisfaction in him who will save you from your sin. I'm going to pray, and after I do, the elements will be set up. We'll come down the middle aisles and return around the outside, taking and eating here at the table. If you're in Christ, come to the table. If you're not in Christ, the table's not for you, but Christ is for you. Run to him and find salvation. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your son. God, we praise you that though we were sinners, you sent him to die for us. That our unrighteousness has been quenched through his death, 
that our justification is secure through his resurrection. God, we pray that you would continue working sanctification and maturation in the lives of your children. Even now, God, we pray that you would grant us grace through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the broken body of our Lord and for the shed blood. God, we thank you for reconciliation and redemption. And we pray for grace upon grace to live lives that are pleasing to you. It is our heart's desire as a people to hallow your name, to facilitate the coming of your kingdom, to accomplish your will, to acknowledge our ongoing daily material needs, to forgive and to be forgiven, and to experience deliverance at your hand from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.